Well, the only suitable encore, the only thing to follow that, I guess, better to say, is the Word of God. <laughs> Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is where we are. Amen. <laughs> yeah, that child knows what's important. <laughs> Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors, and sinners. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We're using as a subject this morning, uh, the Savior seeks the sin sick. The Savior seeks the sin sick. Well, as you all are aware, we're in the Christmas season, and one of the elements of this time of year is Santa Claus. He is portrayed as having a list, which he checks twice to see who's been naughty or nice. God has a list, too but it only has naughty people on it. And naughty, perhaps, is an inadequate word to describe the people that are on God's list. And for the great offense humans have committed against an infinitely holy God, naughty will not do. God's list is a sin list, a list of sinners and their sins, if you will. And on that infamous list is every descendant of Adam, of forgiveness. Matthew, the author of this gospel, has just told the story of the paralyzed man who received forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Now, by means of his pen, Matthew turns a spotlight on himself first, and then on some of his friends and associates. Our first heading helps us see the spotlight on Matthew. And we call it the calling of a sinner. Writing in the third person, you notice there in verse 9, he says of himself, a man called Matthew. He is telling us the beginning point of his spiritual autobiography. He relates his need of forgiveness. He is numbered among those who have sinned against God. And he understood that when Jesus called him, that was the inaugural point of his new life. Like Matthew, who numbered himself among those who needed forgiveness from Christ, uh, the Dutch painter Rembrandt van Ren, in one of his paintings of the crucifixion of Christ, included himself around the cross as one who shared in the guilt of the crucifixion of Christ. 
Rembrandt was not afraid to admit his guilt. Matthew was not afraid to admit that he was a sinner as well. And what Jesus did for him. Jesus found Matthew, as his other name is Levi, sitting in the tax collector's booth. You see it there in verse 9. That's a significant phrase. Those two words are significant. You can read them and not think much of them. If you know the background of tax collectors in Israel, you know those are loaded words. Loaded words. Tax collectors were not esteemed people by the Jews because they collected taxes for the Roman occupiers. Jews believed that they should pay taxes, but not to Rome. They believed they should only pay taxes to God. And they had to pay taxes to the Roman occupiers who were, in their mind, despised. Matthew's tax booth was located in Capernaum, the headquarters of Jesus, which he ministered in that area. It was near the Sea of Galilee. And he was in constant contact with people. And he was constantly charging them as they passed his toll booth. Let me tell you what this guy was doing. He imposed taxes on the transport of goods, on letters, produce, a tax on using the roads, crossing bridges. This man was the omni-tax collector. And because of his location by the Sea of Galilee, he collected taxes from the bustling fishing business that was conducted on that sea. Therefore, Matthew is one of the most hated men in Israel because of his occupation. Not only did he collect taxes on every conceivable thing that could be taxed, David Garland, a commentator, writes, quote, Tax collectors were known for their dishonesty and extortion. They habitually collected more than they were due and made false valuations and false accusations, end of quote. Not only that, they had uh, enforcers or shakedown people. <laughs> they knew how to squeeze that tax money out of somebody. In fact, they could seize a person and beat them up to get the money. They did it at the behest of the tax collectors. And that was who Matthew was. They lined their own pockets. So it was a lucrative business that Matthew was in. And Matthew had gained considerable wealth from his profession. But you need to also know that his profession brought losses too. He was a social outcast, a pariah. People didn't want to have anything to do with him other than what they had to do because of paying taxes. He was politically unacceptable by his fellow Jews because he collaborated with the Romans. He was religiously unacceptable because he was considered unclean and thereby barred from synagogue services. Tax collectors, because they were perceived to be dishonest and nothing but liars, <laughs> it's true, they would lie to get your money. They were not permitted to testify in court. 
In a word, Matthew was a persona non grata, an unacceptable person. More than these things on the social level among his uh, contemporaries, among his countrymen, there was a greater issue with Matthew. And that greater issue was that he was a man under condemnation because of his sins against God. Yet God loved him. And Jesus loved him. And Jesus was not deterred by the stigma attached to him by his profession. Matthew, no doubt, had heard about Jesus. He couldn't have helped but heard about him. He was working right there in Capernaum, and Jesus was doing his miracles and teaching in Capernaum. But as much as Matthew may have known about Jesus, or as little as he may have known about Jesus, Jesus knew far more about Matthew. He knew that this man was weighed down by his guilt because of his sins and was a wretched wretched and miserable sinner. He was wealthy in material things, but spiritually bankrupt. Matthew knew about Jesus. He knew his heart. He knew what was going on inside of him because, no, from the scripture, Jesus knew what was in man. He didn't need for anyone to testify what was going on in human beings. To this sinful, guilt-ridden man, Jesus came in guilt and grace and forgiveness. Think about this. He came in grace and forgiveness. He could have left him in his sins. That's why it's grace. And he says to him in verse 9, follow me. This was a call to salvation to Matthew. The summons was a command. The call to leave his sinful life behind and follow for the rest of his life. He was to follow Christ as Lord and Savior. The salvation call meant, where I lead, you will follow. I am your leader now. Follow me. You notice what Matthew did. He got up. And followed him. He instantly in faith and obedience left his career behind. And Matthew is very humble here. Matthew just simply says, and he got up and followed him. Just saying, that's what I did. I just got up and obeyed the Lord. But Luke writing on the same event, he says these words. He left everything behind. He left his career behind. He left his business behind. In fact, he crossed a spiritual Rubicon at this very moment. That moment very much happened in, spiritually in the life of Matthew. I'm going to tell you what happened. Why he was able to get up and follow Jesus. Number one, he was born again from above. At that very moment, Jesus gave him eternal life. Jesus says, my sheep follow me and I give them eternal life. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. At that very moment, his stony heart was replaced with a heart of flesh. He was therefore responsive to God. He received a new spirit, that is, a new disposition. Also at that moment, he entered the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate and began walking on the narrow way that leads to life. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Christ, who called him, is called one who is full of grace and truth. He bestowed saving grace on the man, and Matthew believed the truth, the gospel. 
All this happened to Matthew at that moment when Jesus said, follow me. It was a profound spiritual transformation. Now he's a former text collector. And he could sing about his transformation. If he were uh, here with us today, and we were singing a particular song, he could sing along with us and know exactly what we were saying. He could, have, he could sing with us, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, now I see. He experienced the grace of Christ. For he had received forgiveness, redemption, and mercy from Jesus Christ. Jesus would die for this man. He would be a substitute on the cross. He would die for his Matthew's dishonesty. All the sins that he had committed and would commit. Christ who said, follow me, would take Matthew's place on Calvary. Just like he did yours and mine. The calling of a sinner is grace. The community of sinners is our next point. Community of sinners. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I'm going to tell you what happened. Matthew's dramatic change, no doubt, drew the attention of his friends and associates. It just rippled through the community of tax collectors and all of Matthew's friends. You know something, Matthew just left his job. He left the lucrative position as a tax collector. And that gave Matthew the basis for telling them about the one who had changed him. Matthew says, I want you to come meet him. That's what's going on here. Matthew has a house, a large enough house, so he invites them all in, in the, to a reception. And Jesus Christ is the guest of honor. And here they come. You notice it says reclining at the table in verse 10. It suggests a prolonged meal at which there would be ample time for conversation and discussion. Can you imagine there's a reclining Jesus on one elbow reclining at that table as they're eating and they're able to converse with Christ. Able to have, ask him questions and he is able to answer them and share with them eternal truths. Jesus Christ right there in the midst of these people. But you notice Matthew does something here he likes to do in his text. Uh, when he writes, you notice the word behold. It's an interesting word. Guess who came to dinner? He says, many tax collectors. That behold draws our attention, many tax collectors. And notice the next thing, and sinners. Sinner is almost a technical term for people who had no concern or respect for the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, Genesis to Deuteronomy. If they didn't try to live by it, they just lived their own sinful lives. No respect for it, nor did they have any re respect for the rabbinical traditions. And included in this group designated here by Matthew as sinners were those who were known criminals, thieves, thugs, enforcers and prostitutes can you imagine having folk like that around your dinner table and Jesus is in the midst of them 
And he's talking with people like that. From the viewpoint of the self-righteous Pharisees, these people were the dregs of society. They're the people that you didn't want to be around. They're people you'll notice something. They ask a question not to Jesus because they're afraid to. But they ask of the disciples, verse 11, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? This was less a question, more of a charge. They consider what Jesus was doing to be wrong. To eat with people like that. In that culture, to eat with people, have table fellowship, meant social acceptance. And he said, this is wrong. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? These people who are pariahs, these people who are dregs in society. The calling of a sinner. The community of sinners. We're going to see something next with this heading. Why he was doing that with these people. Why he called a tax collector. The compassion for sinners. Verse 12. Jesus intervenes and answers the not so veiled charge from three perspectives. He answers and he says in the first thing, you notice in verse 12, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus uses an analogy from the physical world to explain the spiritual need of the people with whom he shared table fellowship. Sick people need a doctor. Doctors do not spend their time with healthy people unless they're on the golf course. Now, you need to understand something. In Jesus' day, and it's a cultural reality, you have to understand that they didn't have hospitals, nor that they go to the doctor's office. The doctor went to them. A doctor explains a life-threatening illness to a patient. And Jesus, as the great physician of the soul, explained the soul-threatening disease of sin to those at his table. I have no doubt in my mind, and you can't have any doubt in your mind, if you know anything about Jesus and what he does as he interacts with people in the Gospels, he always brings the truth to those who needed to hear it. Without question, he told them of the desperate plight they're in, that their souls were in danger. He's a great physician. And he's there among people who were needing his cure. The second thing Jesus tells the Pharisees is the character of God. It's about the character of God. We see this in verse 13. First he says, this is what you guys need to do. You need to go and learn. Those three words, go and learn, were a rabbinic expression used to rebuke foolish ignorance. <laughs> it was to say, this is what you ought to know. Why don't you know this? And he says, go and learn what this scripture means. I, de I desire compassion. 
Let's stop there and unpack this. I desire compassion. This is Yahweh's words through the prophet Hosea. Compassion here renders the Greek word elos, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed meaning covenant loyalty or loyal love. It's from the book of Hosea. God demonstrated loyal love and acts of mercy and kindness to his people Israel. Let's explain why. Significantly, this book of Hosea is about God's love and faithfulness to Israel as portrayed in the life of the prophet Hosea and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. You remember the story? It's how God loved Israel. Israel was unfaithful. Israel was sinful. But God loved them. To have loyal love or to have compassion, as the word is translated here in the text that I'm reading, New American Standard Bible, is to be God-like. God, by nature, is a sinner, savior of sinners. He seeks after sinners. When we are compassionate towards sinners, we are mimicking God. We're being like him. We're being like Christ. When we see their plight and want to bring them from their doom to salvation, bring them out of darkness to light, when we're like that, we're mimicking our God. We see this very in the beginning. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned. And what did God do? He went to the garden to get them, didn't he? He came and covered their sin and pronounced the coming of a redeemer. God is a saving God. He's a God who loves and acts to redeem people. And when we're like that, and we want to be like that, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. The Pharisees looked down on their nose at people whom they thought were beneath them. The Pharisees had a holier-than-thou attitude. Jesus, who was holier-than-thou, did not. He would mingle with them. That's why he was accused of being a glutton and a friend of sinners. (laughs) He was not a glutton, but he was a friend of sinners because he wanted to win sinners. That's why he came to the planet. So he reached people where they were. He didn't try to get them fixed up to make them acceptable to him, some artificial standards. No, he met them where they were because he knew it wasn't something external. They needed something internal. They needed salvation. The Pharisees were people who were the first ones in their seats at the synagogue. Y'all with me? Jesus said, you need to go learn. I desire compassion towards sinners. And I I know know you appreciate that because you were once one. Go and say amen. Amen. Aren't you glad he had compassion toward you? 
you weren't good. And notice what he says here in verse 13. And not sacrifice. Hmm. Sacrifice, what is he talking about here? God instituted the sacrificial system of offerings, rituals, and ceremonies. He is not nullifying them by that text. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm not getting getting rid of the sacrificial system. Not at this point. It was still in effect until Christ died. But that wasn't the real point. Rather, Jesus is saying that what Yahweh always intended was that without compassion, sacrifices in worship to him, the burnt offerings, all of that was unacceptable. Jesus was saying to them, your worship, your sacrifices are unacceptable to Yahweh because you have no compassion for people in their need. There's a text in the Old Testament where um, this is uh, brought out. It's it's the book of Amos. You know that book, don't you? Book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 21. I want to read down through verse 24. I hate... Yahweh speaking. I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What Yahweh is saying, don't come to me with your worship until you get it right with your fellow man. Let there be justice on a personal individual level and let righteousness be something that is constant like an ever-flowing stream. Then you can worship me. That's what they needed to know. God is not interested in worship when there is no compassion or justice or righteousness toward our fellow human beings. It's the character of God. And you see what God is like when you study his word. That's why you want to read and study the word of God because you get to know him and what he's like, right? You get to see how he thinks about issues. And then you get to conform your life to it. The third thing that Jesus wanted to point out to these uh, Pharisees who were snooty, religiously uh, Nose turned up, holier than thou people. He says, this is mission. His mission. There's the need of man. There's the character of God. The third thing, it was Christ's mission. 
verse 13, the final clause. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to earth through the incarnation to rescue sinners. That's the whole point. He came here to call them to salvation. You notice he said, I didn't come to call the righteous. The reason he didn't come to call the righteous is because there aren't any. <laughs> Everybody's a sinner. Romans 3. But this is also a, a, a direct hit to the righteous, so they thought, Pharisees. This is sarcasm. For they thought they were righteous. But their righteousness was merely external and therefore it could not get them to the kingdom. That's why Jesus said, Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus drove home this point on a number of occasions. You recall in Luke chapter 18, there were two men who went to the temple to pray. The first man prayed, of course, was a Pharisee. And he prayed to God. In fact, he was praying to himself. And he boasted about all of his religious accomplishments. That guy fats it twice a week. He gave of all of his tithe. And then he said, I'm not like this Yehu. I'm not the tax collector who couldn't hold his head up, but just bowed his head down and beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said, that man, smote his breast said Lord be merciful to me the sinner he was the man who went home justified the Pharisee you see Jesus came to save sinners notice something here in the text but sinners sinners know who they are you got to come to admit that I'm a sinner. This disreputable group from the Pharisees perspective that was eating with Jesus, no doubt those people knew, oh man, I know I'm not right. I had an occasion to talk to someone not long ago, and it's really, it's refreshing to hear honesty from a non-Christian. I asked them about being about their salvation or whether they had a heaven, going to heaven, et cetera, something along. I don't remember the exact wording, but I do remember this. They acknowledged, no, I'm not a Christian. They didn't say it in a boastful, arrogant way. They just knew their real condition. I said they're in a good, good way because now they can face the facts of what they need to do to come to faith in Christ. Had another occasion, a young woman where we are, this hotel, and doing an OU football game, and I'm sitting in the lobby, the cleaning room, and I'm watching the game. I don't remember which game it was. They all run together after a while, you know. She, she comes over, and she's the desk clerk, and she says something about the game. It's always oh, OU playing and so on. And uh, somehow the subject of religion or Christ came. I don't know how it was introduced. I've been trying to figure out how did I get to, get to that with her? I don't remember. She said, well, I, um, she told me she grew up Catholic. She doesn't believe it. 
and she's from Mexico. She speaks good English. That was helpful to me because I can't speak hardly any Spanish. And so I shared with her, and I said, hold on, let me go get something. I went to my car, I got some attract. And I've had the opportunity to share with her, because she's, she's open. She knows she's not a Christian. She knows she's not going to heaven. But she'll listen. And those people there with Jesus, they knew what they were. They knew they were sinners, but they were listening. And we need to be like Jesus. People are sinners, and we need to call them to salvation. Now, what our text does here, it ends with the two words, but sinners. Luke, he adds a word in his account of this account. He adds the word repentance. For repentance is crucial in salvation. A person has to turn away from his or her sins, right? As he trusts in Jesus Christ. Now, I think it'd be fitting if I turn to another passage of scripture and you might want to look there with me did you not know the church is composed of people who were once sinners no. <laughs> I know I know that's a shock to you 1 Corinthians 6 I want to ask you, how do you think they got from where they were to where they are? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Are you there? Look what it says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that list of sinners. But look at this. Such were some of you. They didn't get them in all the sins that are listed there, but all of them committed one of them. That was their lifestyle. And this is not an exhaustive list. In other words, this is everybody. But in verse 11 says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You're clean now. But you were sanctified. You're set apart now. You're justified, declared righteous now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Transformed. That includes us. And that's what happens when the gospel is believed. When a person trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not what they once were. He cleans them up. He sets them apart from sin. He declares them righteous. He makes them his own. The Savior seeks the sin sick. That was us before Christ. Sin sick and lost. Alienated from God. Under divine wrath. Headed for hell. 
until Jesus intervened. And when we're like Jesus toward other people, no matter what their sin is, we're mimicking him and mimicking God. Let's not be like Pharisees. Let's be like Jesus and seek to win people who desperately need his grace. Do you agree? Uh, now's a good time to do it. Christmas, people are thinking about a babe in a manger. <laughs> and that's right and good, it's biblical. But tell them about that baby and who he is and why he came. They may hear the gospel, the good news, and come to him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the saving grace of Christ. Thank you for sending your one-of-a-kind son into a world full of sinners, rebels against you, deserving not grace, but deserving hell. And you and your great love and mercy have redeemed sinners and are redeeming sinners. Thank you for the ones who sit in the pews in this place or listen online uh, who are yours by grace. We pray that we will be like our Savior seeing people in their need as we once were and sharing with them him as Matthew did. See men and women come to faith in Christ for the glory of your holy name, for your praises both now and for eternity. And these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.